And then Genesis chapter 5. When you found Genesis 5, would you go ahead and stand to honor God's word as we read it? So as you know, I have the teens in here for this time. We're dealing with mindset messages. I learned a lot of this stuff from Pastor Hardy. Brother David and I were at a pastor's training thing a month or so ago and um, dealt with some of these things. And, and then there's more things. Man, I had such a, just a, such a good time in studying this morning for something down the road and just so excited about the, the the word of God is so good, and sometimes it, it seems richer because of different seasons or, or or our effort. But I'm so thankful for the way the word of God in, is meant to shape our thinking. And, and just again, another full philosophical note to be aware of: there is there is theological truth that we need to understand, but it's not just a book of facts that we know. It's truth that's supposed to affect how we live. It's supposed to affect and frame our thinking in our lives. So tonight, we're going to talk about this mindset, passion versus return. Passion versus return. Being motivated by a passion or motivated by a return. So in verse 32 of chapter 5, Noah was 500 years old. And Noah begat Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse number three of chapter six, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. Verse five, and God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually in it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. This idea that God doesn't feel emotion is not rooted in the truth of God. God feels joy, and he feels grief, directly connected to the behavior of the people to whom he has given life. And you see the chaos and the insanity going on today? It hurts the heart. It grieves the heart. It angers the heart of God. And so in verse 7, the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And then verse 8, it's wonderful, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes on to describe his family Verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh, had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he details the ark that he is supposed to build. And in verse 18, but with thee will I establish my covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female. He finishes that description. Verse 22, thus did Noah according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Verse 1 of chapter 7, and the Lord said unto Noah, come thou 
and all thy house into the ark. For thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. They all come in. Verse number six, and Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. He's 500 years old in chapter five, verse 32. He's 600 years old in chapter seven. And just, just want you to understand there's been some significant years that have passed but say during chapter six leading into chapter seven. And that'll, that'll be relevant with the help of God as we get to the end of the application of this. Father, would you help us tonight and just help this to be clear and help us to make the right application. And God, even where I'm, even where I'm weak, would you help by the work of your perfect spirit and word, would you make clear application to the hearts of your people in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Thanks so much for standing. How many moms do we have in here? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. I am not a mom. I'm not. But I'm, I have one. And I'm married to the mother of my children. And so I, I've, been able, I've been able to observe a, a reality about motherhood and a struggle although I'm not a mom, that I think every mom in this room would give testimony to. Yeah, I've thought that once or twice today. I, I, did, I wasn't aware of this when I, was, when I was a kid. I'm aware of it now because I remember some of the ridiculousness that I brought into our family. And, and then when you look at my children, if you're ever like, why? Oh, yeah, Pastor Pyle. Okay, yeah, we got it. I, I, I look at, I, I think back. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't always easy to parent. I know it's going to surprise some of you, but there were times when my mom and dad thought this. Are we making any difference in the life of this child? Is there any point to, and I'm only talking about me right now. Don't get your feelings hurt about your babies. I'm only talking about me. Is there any point to investing in this reprobate. I know my mom struggled with that. She told me she did. <laughs> when I was three. <laughs> no. What's amazing is, is how I watch Andrea struggle with this. You know this is real, and, and kids, some of you are like, well, that's not me. No, it's not. I mean, you're all so pretty and godly, and you're all so handsome and spiritual, but you're not nearly as perfect as you think you are. And if I could just get some moms to be honest for a moment, ha- have there been moments maybe in your, in your motherhood life, or maybe in this past year, or month, or week, or today, where you're like, am I really making a difference in the life of this child? Have there any... Yeah, I mean, we got a few. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Praise the Lord. That's a real struggle, isn't it? It is a real struggle, and it's okay. It's okay that it's a real struggle, but you want, this is what you wonder. You wonder if, if what you're pouring into it, and let's just, men, if we can just appreciate 
the investment in teens, if we can just appreciate the investment of the godly women that God has put into our life, not that they're perfect, but they pour into us at a level unlike anyone else. And, and, and fathers aren't supposed to pour in the same way. Moms were created to pour in one way. Fathers created to pour in another way. And we're not devaluing one by valuing the other. But can we just pause for a moment and say, man, our lives are better because of the godly women that God has put into our lives. And, and what, what we fail to understand is, is that they, it, it's not just a task, that they are, young people, they are pouring themselves into us. And there's a connection there that you don't understand until you have children of your own, but they're pouring their life into us. And, and yet, this is what we know about kids. They don't come out pre-made. And, and it's not like throw them in the microwave of biblical truth for three minutes and they come out saved and sanctified and respecting you and obeying God and want to live for the Lord and have a college education and making all the money that they need to so they can pay for your retirement. It's not how it happens. You see how naturally that just flowed out? I just think about this stuff way too much apparently. But we have this, we, we, we forget. And, and I have this conversation with Andrea and I make the statement, Andrea, you're not parenting for this moment, you have to parent in this moment, but you're not parenting for this moment. This is a very long process to produce a woman or a man that is going to honor God. It's a process. But the investment is hard sometimes, isn't it? When you're not seeing the return that you want to see. And so you have to, a mom has to ask herself, a dad has to ask herself, a family has to ask themselves, are we going to be driven by a passion or are we going to be driven by an, an obvious return or lack thereof? In our text, man's wickedness on the earth is only increasing and we know that because God says it's that way. And, and just a thought, the, the history has taught us this that as societies progress, the, the behavior doesn't increase, it decreases. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to matter how good the start is, whether, it, whether it's ancient history or our, the own, our own history as a nation, that you, you can see some fluctuations. There can be times of revival, but because of man's brokenness, the, the behavior of of societies only deteriorates. And so there are two things that I want you to notice. Number one, God declares a sentence of judgment in verse number seven of chapter six. He said, I will destroy. So because, because the debauchery of humanity, because of the violence that was specifically mentioned. And I just want to remind you that what was offensive to God then is still offensive to God today. God hates violence and in a culture that glorifies it and is unaffected by it, in a culture that sanctions it against the elderly and against the, the, the young, whether in the womb, and we're even getting to the place where it's out of the womb, in a, in a society that sanctions it, where you can commit multiple murders and live a life paid for by taxpayers. I'm telling you, this, this country sanctions violence against its own people. You don't have to like it, but the stats prove that. And the same God that hated it then, he hates it today. And in the, in the same way that innocent blood cried out 
in that day. It cries out in this day. And so God said, I'm, I'm going to judge because of this violence. But this is amazing about God. And I understand that we see, we, we, we're familiar with the verse in, in verse number 8, I think, where Noah found grace in the eyes of God. Anyone that says God's not a gracious God, God in the Old Testament is just mean. No, God hates sin, Old and New Testament. But God is also gracious, Old and New Testament. And there's never been a time when God is not what he is. And so he pronounces the judgment, but the second thing is he declares a timeline for that judgment. In verse number three, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that. He also, he is flesh, yet his days shall be in 120 years. And so he gives a specific timeline at the end of which he is going to judge. You say, where's the mercy in that? It's that people have an opportunity to consider their behavior and to turn to God. This is amazing about God. Man, I've heard people say ridiculous. I, I heard this when I was a kid. And it's annoying because we don't get to dictate to God anything. We say, man, if God doesn't do something with whatever state, he's going to have to apologize to you know, God doesn't have to apologize to anybody. And, and, and anybody that would glorify in the wrath of God doesn't understand the heart of God. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. It's not his will that any should perish. No, he would have all men to be saved. You know, this idea that we glorify in that, we need to thank God that he's merciful. And that he gives people time. People that we wouldn't give time. People that we don't think deserve time. By the way, you don't deserve it either. We just need to be thankful that he's merciful. So it's evidence of his mercy. Now it was during this period between chapter 6 and 7 that the ark was being built by Noah. God gives very detailed instructions about how to do it and what to do. And Noah simply believes God and does it. But note this, just a side note. The Bible doesn't actually say how long the building of the ark took that I can find. We assume based on verse number three of chapter six that it took 120 years, but that was a reference point for how long it, time, how much time would pass before judgment. It, but here's the, here's the point. It doesn't matter ultimately how long it took him to build it. Now, some of y'all just really upset you right there. No, I'm happy if, if I miss it somewhere, but, but this illustrates a point I want to, a side point, but a point I want to communicate. Sometimes we get hung up on things that aren't the main thing. Now, if I'm missing it, please tell me. I just, I just, in studying it, I can't see where it definitively says it took 120 years. So what does that mean? You can think it took 120 years. You know what I think? I have no idea exactly how long it took him. You know what I think? God said build the ark, and he built the ark. And God said it's going to be 120 years before I judge the earth, and it was 120 years before he judged the earth. <laughs> I say, well, that, you're kind of simple. Yeah, I know. So here's the question. <laughs> here's the question. Besides the ark, was he doing anything else of significance during this period? Now, here's why this matters, because the Bible actually deals with that. 1 Peter 3, verse 20, which sometime, talking about the generations, and I'm not going to deal with the context of these passages, but they reference Noah as an example, and the reference gives implication to what was going on here. 
which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited. Aren't you, man, aren't you thankful that the long-suffering of God moved him to wait on you at times? How dare we have how dare we have a heart that says, God, we wish you wouldn't wait on them when he's been so patient with us. The long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing. Now, we'll come back to the, the end of it in a minute, but here's what's going on. You ready? Here's the first thing. What was Noah doing? You ready? He was obeying God. The earth is inundated with violence and debauchery and selfishness and lasciviousness and vileness of all kinds. And what is Noah doing? With this singular man with his wife and his three sons and eventually their wives, these eight souls, what are they doing in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation? This isn't complicated, but it's pretty profound. They are doing what they knew God told them to do. Their attitude was this, I'm going to obey God until he tells me to do something differently. I'm not going to worry about what I don't know. I'm going to focus on what I do know. I'm going to pour myself into obeying God. They were obedient. And by their obedience, their simple acts of obedience to God, they were, they were, they were witnesses against the disobedience of the generations around them. Second thing, 2 Peter 2.5. Talks about how God spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. Then what's the phrase? A preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Look, the words in the Bible mean something, and I believe there are two ways by which righteousness is declared. Number one, I think it's through the way that we live our lives. But I also personally believe this. I'm not going to argue with anybody about it, but I believe that Noah was vocal not just in building the ark, but that he, that he was vocally, verbally confronting the people among whom he lived, warning them of the judgment of God and imploring them to turn from their sin and to believe in God. I believe that he was declaring that. And, and it would be consistent with the nature of God and the pattern in Scripture that all the way through you find God raising up voices to declare the truth and to warn and speak on behalf of God's truth. So here's the second thing he was doing. You ready? He was obeying. Second thing, he was investing in the world around him. Pouring himself into them. Living for God and investing for God. Here's another question. Did it produce very much? Go back to 1 Peter 3.20. Which sometime were disobedient when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing. Wherein, what's the next word? Few. That is eight souls. You uh, look at verse number seven, or chapter seven of verse one, and back in Genesis, the Lord said unto Noah, come thou in all thy house, meaning those eight. So Noah, in verse seven, went in and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark. And we look at a, we look at a church planter somewhere, and we say, man, they don't have a lot of people. They're not being successful. Well, then at every church planning or missions conference in the world, we would conclude that Noah was unsuccessful. You say, why? Because it just had a few people. Man, some, some guy out in 
some backwater town that nobody knows about. Obviously, that's not successful. Some village in the Middle East somewhere, and, and they're just barely hanging on and have two or three people meeting in their house. Some underground church somewhere in Asia where they, they can't go out and have a website, and they can't canvas, and they're just scraping by with just a few people here and there, or some field somewhere, some community somewhere. And, and I just want to remind you of this, that not every place in America is like it is here in this valley, and not every church is getting to enjoy what we are getting to enjoy here. And again, I'm just going to take this opportunity to remind you, young people and less young people alike, we are no better than anyone else. God is choosing to work here, and I thank him for it, and I want it to happen, and I want to be a part of it. But if we ever begin to think it's because of us and not because of him, we are in danger of falling, and the estimation of success can never be based on the size of a congregation. We're in few. We're saved. So, I know you know the answer, but don't answer it. Think about it because it's so easy to just say the answer. Don't say it out loud. Just think. Was Noah successful? Don't, don't answer, please. Just think. Was Noah successful? Okay, let's all answer together. One, two, three. Yes. 100%. So here's the question I want to deal with. And I'll do my best not to be long. Was Noah driven more by a passion to obey God and invest in people? Or was he driven more by a return? It's a passion to obey And to invest for. I believe this. You don't read the word. I believe it though. I believe that Noah loved God. I believe Noah was a fiercely strong man. The bro built an ark without a table saw. Or a nail gun. Look, we got some manly dudes in this house. I'm just saying, <laughs> this dude's way past Centrum Silver Age. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, the flood and all of that. Yeah, okay, yeah, I got it. I got it. I'm still going to be impressed. He was a fiercely strong man. say toxic masculinity to Noah and he might punch you in the face with some pitch. <laughs> okay, that was a joke. <laughs> Just messing around. Fiercely strong man. And yet he loved God. And he loved people. You know what he didn't have control over? He didn't have control over who outside of his house. That's a whole nother message, by the way, because you should have control over your own house. But he didn't have any control over anyone outside of his house and how they responded to the offer of salvation and to the warning of judgment. He didn't have any control over that. He couldn't predict it. 
All he could do was control his life and his effort. And so he, he, he was driven more by a passion to obey God and a passion to invest. Why would you be so passionate about obeying God when it's so culturally counter? When it, when it seems like you're just irrelevant? Why would you be passionate about it? Are you ready? Because I love him. Because I found grace in his eyes and he has given me salvation and I love him and, and I don't care how unpopular I am and I don't care how weird I am. I'm going to live my life being obedient to God because he's loved me and my obedience isn't born out of some fear that he's going to whack me in the head. It's born out of a desperate love for him because of all that he's done for me. Far too long, God's people have thought that the primary motivation for obedience to God and separation unto God is to be fear and this anxiety from him. But it should be motivated by love for him. He loves me and, there, and I love him. And so I should want to obey him. My children need to fear consequences of disobedience. But it's such a wonderful day when I see love for their mom and their dad developing. And they begin to, bat, they begin to obey, not because they're afraid of a consequence, but because they love their dad and mom. Motivated by love. Not only that, he loved people. What kind of return did he get? Well, in the immediate, very little. By the way, your attitude should be this. I may not be able to see the whole community come to Christ, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to pour myself into it, and I'm going to start with my own home. And then I'm just going to extend that circle out. And I'm going to try to get as many people inside of that circle as possible. In the immediate, it didn't seem to produce much. But it did down the road. <laughs> like, he didn't have a very productive ministry. Uh, you're here. Jesus came. <laughs> you say, well, that didn't happen in his day. Yeah, but it still happened. Not in his day, but because of his day. Can I, can I talk to some parents right now that have some hurting hearts for wondering children? It may not happen in your day, everything that you want to see happen in the lives of your child or grandchild. But it doesn't mean it won't happen because of your day. And the fruit that and the seed that you sow might be fruit that is reaped after you're already in heaven, but it can still be fruit that is reaped if you'll be faithful. Now look, it's not that the return doesn't matter. It's just that you can't control it or predict it. You can only control your efforts. So be motivated by a passion to obey him and to invest for him more than you are a return. Just a few thoughts and I'll be done. Number one, an investment takes time. Man, I'm, I'm excited about what you'll hear on Sunday afternoon, what God has done. I'm excited in what I believe God is going to do in San Diego. You understand none of those things happened overnight. They don't even happen with just one life. It's life upon life and ministry upon ministry and God building. 
I mean, you look at West Valley, it's easy, easy for people to come in here and, and they think, man, it's really going on in here. But what you don't remember, some of you met, never knew about it, were the years before when Brother Hetzer was the pastor here and it was scarce and things weren't rolling and there had to be some really hard decisions made and there had to be some confrontation with biblical truth. And sometimes it, you, you can even wonder, is this ever going to gain momentum? And yet because of an investment that maybe you're not always certain it's going to produce that was made back then, now it's continuing to produce fruit maybe even more than could have been expected. Investment takes time. Moms and dads, it takes time in the lives of your kids. Look, don't, don't give yourself an excuse for you need to tighten things up, but you also need to understand that your children have to go through a process. And you, and you can't become desperate as though you're failing or your child is an exception when there's fluctuation in that. Be, two things. One, it just takes time in training them. And then number two, they have to choose to walk with God. And again, we're thankful for God being long-suffering. You've got to understand friend day and investing in people. Pastor, what's going to happen if, if we only have two guests come? We're going to have a great day in the house of God. What happens if no guests come? We're going to have a great day assembling together because God's worth is not determined by who is or isn't here. He's here and so he's worthy. And you say, man, I'm, I'm really working on this person to get saved. I'm really trying to get them to come to church. That takes time. You can't invest in them because you're guaranteed an immediate result. you got to understand that investment takes time. You say, what about this relationship that I'm dealing with and it's just really hard and, I'm, and I have this hurt? Investment takes time. Number two, investment doesn't always guarantee a return. This is hard. Every person I've witnessed to hasn't gotten saved. Every person I've invested in as a pastor, that hasn't always come back in a positive way. By the way, neither did it for Jesus. Number three, the investment, obedience, even though a certain return in people's lives isn't guaranteed, it always receives a blessing from God. You say, well, what blessing did Noah get? Seriously? You know that whole grace and the ark and the picture of Jesus and we're alive and they're all dead, and then out of our lineage, the world is repopulated, and the Messiah is going to come. You know what that's called? Blessing. Can you imagine if he had stopped obeying and investing because of the lack of an immediate return? You're like, well, yeah, that's obvious. No, you, you, it's obvious in hindsight. It's not obvious when you're the only one serving God. And sometimes you might think in your family, you might think at work, you might think our, our church in, 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 the, in a secular environment where churches are getting further and further away from the truth. I mean, it doesn't really seem like we're making a big difference. You can't possibly know the ways God is going to work down the road. Mm. An investment does produce much more down the road, even if you don't live to see it. It does. So when the investment, when the obedience doesn't seem to be re producing a return, if you're motivated by a return, you can get discouraged, you can make compromises. Look, churches do this. 
because they, they are more concerned about a return, an immediate return, than they are being obedient to God with their doctrine, with their philosophy, with their interaction with one another, because they're more concerned about attracting numbers than they are actually helping people. They compromise. And it's not recognizable as an actual church of Jesus Christ anymore. You get discouraged, you compromise, and you miss out on God's blessing. And God's blessing in eternity and in the length of your life is far better than a moment of gratification. So be motivated. Mindset, teens, mindset. Be motivated by a passion for God and for people more than you are a guaranteed return. Be driven by it. You say, Why, by what? What, pastor? Be driven by your love for God. Don't obey your parents because they're perfect. Obey them because you love God. I mean, don't, don't talk to teens because the, the new guests that come in, don't talk to teens because they're always going to be easy to talk to or because you're always going to be comfortable talking to them or because it's not going to be awkward at times. Talk to them because Jesus died for them and he loves them and because Jesus saved you, you should love what he loves. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what it's going to produce, but I know that we have to be driven, and we need young people. You say, wait, Pastor, why do you talk so much to the teens? Because you're not always going to be teens. And at some point, you've got to get serious about your own faith and thinking about what kind of man and thinking about what kind of woman of God you want to be because one day there's going to be a mantle that needs to be taken up, and you've got to start taking ownership for it now. And we've got to be faithful in our generation. And maybe we, don't, maybe we don't see all that it produces. But we better know that if we're driven by a return more than we are a passion for God and for people, the generations beyond us will pay the price for it. But if we're driven by passion for God and for people, generations beyond us will be blessed by it. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Are you driven by a passion for God? Are you driven by a love for people? I can't, I can't guarantee any parent every outcome. I can't guarantee every broken heart a specific outcome. I can't, I can't guarantee my young sisters and brothers on these front rows that, that certain things are definitely going to happen. I can't, I can't guarantee that. But what I can guarantee on the authority of the word of God is that a life that is lived being motivated by passion for God and for people, a passion to invest, that is a blessed life. And it doesn't always provide immediate gratification, but it does provide generational blessing. So this is, a, this is a daily mindset we got to battle with because sometimes we just want to quit because we're not seeing the benefit of it. How many of you would raise your hand, heads bowed and eyes closed and say, there have been seasons in my life recently where I wanted to quit because I wasn't seeing the benefit of it. Would you raise your hand and say, that's me. I struggle with that. Maybe, maybe you're, you're not, but it would be good just to take evaluation and say, I, I, just, I really need to make sure that my heart is motivated not by the return, but by 
God, his love for me and his love for people. And I'm going to invest because it's right. And I'm going to trust that the investment in one way or another is going to be blessed by God and it will make a difference. If God has spoken in your heart, be responsive to him. Let's all stand together. Brother Nate, you sing. If the Lord has talked to you, give him the courtesy of a response.